Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is your host, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal. Whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health-related topics with other editorial board members, we hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice. Today, I'm joined by Catherine Flowers, author of Waste, One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret. I'm also joined by Antonio Gardner and Ashley White-Jones, authors of Using an HIV Disclosure Model to Slow the Spread of COVID-19, and they're going to help us explore environmental justice in Black communities. But before we get started, I'm going to ask Antonio to introduce the group. Hi, everyone. I'm Antonio Gardner. I'm an assistant professor of health promotion and the Department of Food, Science, Nutrition, and Health Promotion at Mississippi State University. My research interests are in health equity with a concentration specifically on rural and or African-American populations. And so my go-to topics within those communities are HIV prevention, COVID-19 disclosure and prevention, faith-based health literacy, and drowning prevention. I'm calling in from Starkville, Mississippi. And so our next presenter is Dr. Ashley White-Jones. I met Dr. Jones at the University of Alabama. We were both doctoral students at the same time. And once we realized our research interests overlapped, we've been pretty much joined at the hip on various initiatives, manuscripts, grants, other collaborations as well. And so just a little bit more about Ashley White-Jones. She is a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Health, Exercise, and Recreation Management at the University of Mississippi. Her research interests are in health equity and disparities in African-American communities. Some of her go-to topics include culturally responsive mental health teletherapy for Black and other minority communities, African-Americans' men's access and their experiences with the U.S. healthcare system, and Black maternal health. And Ashley is calling in from Oxford, Mississippi. Ashley. Would you like to share anything that was not shared in your brief introduction? Nope, I think that's it. Thanks, Antonio, for the introduction. Glad to be with you, Arden. Thank you so much, Ashley. Our next speaker is Catherine Coleman Flowers. And my personal connection to Catherine is she's family for me. So her mother and my great-grandmother are sisters. And her mother actually named my mother. And also, Catherine is... Well, was the first person to pay for a collegiate course for me. So I took dual enrollment courses in high school and I was a little bit short, didn't know I had to pay for dual enrollment, anything. And so uh, Catherine stepped in and helped me to um, take my first collegiate course ever. And so I'm forever indebted to Catherine for just the opportunity to initiate college at such an early age and get exposed and create these opportunities for myself as well as other family members and members of the community. But a little bit more about Catherine. Catherine is the founder of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice, and she is the Rural Development Manager with the Equal Justice Initiative. She's also a 2020 MacArthur Fellow and the author of the book, Waste, One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Secret. You may have seen her most recently if you watch TV on 60 Minutes with Bill Whitaker discussing the environmental injustices that have been seen in Lowndes County, Alabama. Catherine is calling in from Madison, Alabama. Catherine, 
Would you like to share more about yourself? Well, I think you did most of it. Thank you so much. And it's great to note that our genes include the, the desire to achieve social justice. And, and we're all getting it, going about it different ways. But I think it's a part of our family legacy. And I'm happy to be a part of this podcast with you. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much, Catherine. All right. And thank you, Antonio, for introducing this wonderful group that we have today. And I want to start off by asking Antonio and Ashley, I understand that you're working on a manuscript that talks about the Jackson water crisis, specifically the Black church's response. Can you tell me a little bit more about this paper? Sure, I'll go ahead and start. So we decided to take a stab at writing for a special call for a journal through Jackson State University through their Urban Research Center. And so over the summer, Antonio and I got together to work on this particular manuscript, looking at the church's response. So back in around mid-February, 2021, there was a winter snowstorm. And so most people are probably familiar with all of the fallout that happened around Texas, but the same thing was happening in Jackson, Mississippi. And so decades of infrastructure that has not been addressed caused a lot of water issues in the city of Jackson. And so not only did you know, COVID come in and exposed a lot of the disparities in Black communities. This kind of added another layer of disparity in a predominantly Black city such as Jackson, Mississippi, which is also the capital of the state of Mississippi. So it's kind of like, you know, the capital should have everything in order, but they're seeing a lot of issues. And so as the churches kind of mobilized to respond to this particular crisis, we wanted to take a deeper look at, you know, how did they organize what were some things that they faced? What kind of challenges did, did they see becoming centers for distribution of water for a lot of the individuals in the community? And so what we saw was that the city was kind of scrambling to take care of things from their perspective, but it was residents, it was churches, it was nonprofit organizations who actually just got out and started doing something really quickly. And so we had several churches who were also vaccination sites as a part of COVID-19, and they worked with the State Department with that. And so in turn, they began to distribute water, whether it was through bottled water. And then we also had another church that actually had potable water. So the National Guard was set up there to help them distribute potable water. And so all of this stuff was kind of informally done as churches just wanted to help. And so our manuscript basically focuses on how these churches got together to organize and also points to the timely and, I mean, just just importance of the Black church as a pillar in the community and how even during a pandemic, when we're not supposed to be gathering and you know, social distancing, that they were able to make this work. Antonio, if you want to share any additional thoughts about just an overview of what we were able to find. And I mean, I could talk about this for days, but uh, I want to make sure that we, I don't take up all of the time talking. Right. So I just wanted to um, reiterate that the purpose of this study or highlight that the purpose of the study was to examine the community's resilience using churches as a vehicle to cope with the water crisis that was occurring during this COVID-19 pandemic. So it's a crisis within a crisis. What we were looking at specifically, we conducted our methodology was semi-structured interviews, qualitative interviews with six Black pastors in Jackson, Mississippi. And we were able to do some analyses, quick analyses through in vivo coding. And we had five themes to arise from our coding. 
And so the first theme was historical context of access to water. The second theme was organizing in a crisis within a crisis. The third theme was use of technology to spread the word. The fourth theme was mobilizing and building capacity. And the last theme was the Black church as a pillar of the community. And so Ashley, if you would like to speak to any of those themes, I can pull up a first quote and kind of let you run from there (laughs) (laughs) with something I thought was interesting, but this is directly from the paper. So the first quote from one of the pastors was related to the historical context theme was, the crisis of war in Jackson, Mississippi is an inherited problem. It happens with many, many cities who go through transitioning from the white establishment to that of African-American or whatever. The infrastructure was never maintained and totally repaired during prior administrations. So now the present administration inherits multi-million dollar needed repairs every year. We've had water problems. So absolutely. So this particular quote came from one of our participants and pretty much summed up a lot of the issues that we see in predominantly Black cities where we've had white flight. And so um, particularly in Jackson, a lot of the city's infrastructure is aging as cities around it have become built, such as Madison, you have Pearl, Raymond, all these cities on the outskirts that traditionally were Black establishments as well, but now they've become kind of areas in which white residents are deciding to move out to. And so they're building in these areas. And so that takes away the tax base from the actual capital city. And also one thing to point out is because Jackson is the capital city, a lot of the buildings downtown are government owned, which means that there is not any financial incentives being generated from that because those are government buildings. So you're not really collecting rent from all these different state-run organizations that are housed in the city of Jackson. So that kind of leads to not being able to have enough money to pay for a lot of the infrastructure problems. Jackson's mayor now is currently Black, and the mayor's, I think, probably the last five or so terms have all been Black. And so when issues like this come up, it's kind of easy for people to point the finger and say, oh, it's because Black people are running the city of Jackson. But that's not necessarily the case. These are issues that they go through every term or every new administration because they're still kind of putting Band-Aids on it and trying to recover from, you know, when individuals left the city to build these other towns outside of it. And another thing to kind of note, too, is that when they're thinking about consuming the drinking water, it was not just you know, just bottled water as one of the issues. But a lot of people talk about how they just they just don't drink it, period, because they have been in the city for so long and there's always like a boil water notice or, you know, something else kind of happens every year. And so this was probably the longest time that they had not had, you know, running water in their homes. And it was also during, you know, a snowstorm. So you can imagine if it's it's cold, you're already dealing with the weather, then also to not have, you know, water. And then in some cases there were 
electricity issues. They were down power lines because of snowstorms. So it was a lot of things kind of happening. And this also kind of created an issue as we're in an ongoing pandemic. How do people wash their hands if they don't have you know, running water? So that's you know, one of our things that we've been talking about is hygiene and cleanliness. And so this affects how you're actually able to protect yourself from spreading COVID-19 if you're not able to do those things and go through those guidelines. And just to kind of point another thing that I thought was really interesting was that within these churches, they kind of had their own networks. And so it wasn't anything that they were getting a lot of help from the city with. This was something that they were doing as their own organization. And so in you know, public health, we talk about social ecological model, and we look at all those different levels and how there are things that can happen from public policy standpoint. Well, that wasn't happening. So we didn't have any, you know, the state coming in to say, we're going to declare this as a natural disaster or get FEMA involved to be able to set aside monies or whatever. So that didn't necessarily happen right off the bat. And so the churches decided to kind of step in and provide some aid for their community members. And they decided to organize. And we kind of looked at community readiness model as a way to kind of see where they were through the planning, preparation, initiation stages. So churches themselves, you know, have been shut down during COVID-19 and they weren't gathering for worship or, you know, Bible study and things like that. And so what they did was create drive-throughs where individuals could come in and pick up cases of water. And as they were organizing, a lot of attention from other churches outside of um, the state of Mississippi they started paying attention. And so they wanted to get involved. And we had one church that was able to get Amazon to deliver a truckload of water to them so they could distribute it. We had one church that received a grant of about $50,000 to continue to do this work and also to provide hot meals. So it wasn't just, you know, drinking water, but also you needed water for preparation of food. And so that kind of added to their ongoing efforts on the ground. And lastly, I just want to note that through technology, when you think about a lot of these churches have varying age groups of membership. And so you're thinking about social media and, you know, that's kind of like a millennial thing. And, you know, they're on TikTok and they're doing, you know, all these dances and stuff. But these churches had to kind of pivot from having to always deliver their message in person to now figuring out ways to do service through, you know, virtual means, whether that was through Facebook Live, through YouTube, or either through teleconference lines where some would call in. And so that actually helped them. So COVID, in a way, kind of prepared them to deal with the um, water crisis issue because they had already put in place those communication methods, and that made it easier for them to announce things like they were having distribution days or you could come in and get a meal because they were already using social media. So that was a good thing to kind of help prepare them. And I keep saying last, but this is absolutely my last thing I'm going to say. But one of the quotes that really stuck with me was from one of the pastors who talks about the importance of the church. And so historically, the Black church has been you know, a gathering place. It's often been a place where people have received aid, whether that's paying light bills, safety, also just, you know, spiritual nourishment for them, depending on how they connect with religion and all of that. But the quote that 
I think about this all the time. It's just that he mentioned this is just but one example of the necessary good churches do, particularly Black churches. And in a time when the Black church's relevance is often called into question, I think moments like this remind us that as imperfect as our churches are, they're still necessary. They are indispensable. So hopefully this moment will show how to help this indispensable institution be stronger and better moving forward. So that we'll be around you know, 50 or so years or the next 100 years, or even the next one in a century storm or pandemic hits will be around. So he closed this quote with, we want the church to be strong, not just surviving, but thriving. And so I think that really points to how, you know, years of organizing in the church has kind of continued to happen. And even in, you know, this once in a lifetime type of pandemic situation or snowstorm, the church has still been able to pull together and be a pillar and a resource for a lot of individuals who are in vulnerable populations. Absolutely. And I really appreciate your work on the church's ability to respond and mobilize given these longstanding structural inequalities and inequities. And as you're mentioning the themes about the historical context and white flight happening, Catherine, I wanted to bring you in and talk about some of these inherited issues that folks are experiencing because you've been fighting for environmental justice for Black communities for some time now. So can you tell us about the work that you've been engaged in in the past couple of decades? Uh, yes, thank you for having me be a part of this program. Well, first of all, one of the things that I heard come of that that's connected to my work, we often talk about the maintenance of these systems and whether or not these systems are properly maintained. But I like to bring in another factor, and that's the fact that these systems are not designed to last long. <laughs> and a lot of these systems that they're putting in Black communities or poor communities or rural communities are not maintainable. And I think that that is a narrative that we need to move away from when we know that there is a policy in this country of developing things that will not last. And there's even a term, uh, the, uh, I think it's called plan obsolescence, where they actually plan for these things to fail. And what we should do is come up with policies to make sure that it does not apply to our water and sanitation systems because the systems are set up in such a way that they even eliminate spare parts or they use the type of materials that you can't replace so that you have to replace the whole system. And what we have done, and when I went to, to um, recently I went to a TED event because my work centers around climate change and environmental justice with a particular emphasis on sanitation. But I went to a TED event where I was invited to go there because we were talking about environmental justice and COP26 and talking about climate change and how environmental justice communities are impacted by it. And when I looked out of my hotel window, there was the Edinburgh Castle. This was in Scotland, Edinburgh, Scotland. It was almost 2,000 years old. We can't build a system to last 100 years. And clearly, a lot of these systems that they're building, they know that they're failing. And when they leave and go and build something new somewhere else, they leave them there. And then it's the same narrative that I've heard across this country when these sanitation systems fail, that the people are not maintaining them. But the other part of that is they were not built to last. And that's something that we need to change. So my work has been around sanitation. And in Lowndes County, Alabama, where, where I initially started doing this work over 20 years ago, 
people were being arrested because they could not afford on-site sanitation because it was so it was so expensive. But now we found we did a house-to-house survey of the county many years ago, um, probably around 2013, 2014. We found that it was it was deeper than that, that these systems were not lasting, even the people that were paying for them. We also did a parasite study where we collected fecal soil, water, and blood samples in places where people had either sewage on the ground, or in some cases, they had failing sanitation systems where sewage was coming back into their home. We found that the people that had the highest percentage of hookworm DNA in their systems were not the people that were straight piping, which is flushing their toilets and is going out on top of the ground. It was the people where it was coming back into their homes as well. So we have created a public health crisis by not designing systems that will last or systems that will work. We can get a roof with asphalt shingles with a 40 year guarantee on the fact that there's no defect in the product. We cannot get that on a lot of these sanitation and water systems. And what I'm hearing around the country from people that we are working with is that water and sanitation is a major issue. Whether you're talking about lead in the pipes in Flint or the failing infrastructure that's in Jackson, Mississippi. I saw the same thing happen when I went to Mount Vernon, New York, where people have homes about 30 minutes from Times Square with sewage coming back into their homes, or in Lyons County, Alabama, which is located along the Selma to Montgomery Mars Trail. This is a major problem, and we need to address it. And hopefully, since this administration has an emphasis on infrastructure, we hope to be able to provide some guiding light to them to make sure that these communities that have been left behind and under-resourced will get what they need. First of all, to get top-notch equipment to treat wastewater and to also provide drinking water. We wanna make sure that happens first and not that they put in these cheap things that they know are gonna fail. And then when the next administration and we're right back where we started. Absolutely, and it sounds like what really stuck in my head was this planned obsolescence and things not being built to last. Are there some solutions that we're seeing elsewhere that might be something that we can translate to these communities? What are some solutions that we're seeing? Well, one of the solutions that we're trying to work on, we're looking to space. You know, a lot of what we use, whether it's MRIs in the hospitals or even cell phones came from space technology. So one of the reasons I'm in Madison, Alabama is because my goal is to start working with people who are currently working at NASA or people that have formerly worked at NASA for the purpose of trying to look at the technology they use to treat wastewater and outer space. Just think about it. They, it's, it's, they, don't have, they can't put it in a septic tank and then it drains through the soil and then goes back into, you know, they can't do that. It's a closed loop system but they can actually take urine and treat it to drinking water quality. If we could take that technology and bring it down to earth, I like to bring together people from Lowndes County, Alabama, people like Ben Wallace's brother. For those that don't know Ben Wallace, he was the the first black player that came from an HBCU to be inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame that was undrafted. His brother is the person who runs a farm in Lowndes County, did not go to college, but he can fabricate parts to keep the equipment running that's 30 years old. They don't make the parts anymore. That type of ingenuity we wanna bring together with these these NASA engineers to come up with a way to treat wastewater, to change the paradigm, where when the pipes fail, 
that is not going into our drinking water source or coming back into our homes. And that's what we're working on as a potential solution because anything that we have seen thus far is a short-term solution. It's not a long-term solution. We actually did a project with the Guardian newspaper last year where we asked people to self-report what we call America's Dirty Secret. And we heard from people around the country that are talking about these failures. A lot of these failures are, in, are at the intersection of environmental justice, but some of it is also climate change because it was not designed to deal with a changing climate. It's, you know, it's just like when Ashley talked about what happened in Jackson, that was a freak, um, was at that time, you know, a historic event that took place in terms of that, that storm that took out power and water from Texas all the way to, to Mississippi. So those kinds of occurrences are going to happen more and more often because of the changes in our climate. But we have not built our systems to address those. And these systems, especially sanitation and water is very important because it's critical to our health and certainly critical to the health of the public. That's why we have sanitation and water systems. Absolutely. And actually I wanted to bring you back into the conversation are there other things that you're seeing as solutions here, even in regards to churches and the work that you are doing? Yes, just wanted to know, as I was kind of talking with other individuals about the work that we were doing around Jackson Water Crisis and kind of highlighting the church's role, there is a company that I have, one of my colleagues has been connected with that creates solar panels that can convert the vapors into water. And so one of the ideas that we've been kind of exploring is putting these kind of solar powered fountains in places where individuals could easily access, whether that's a school where, you know, kids could have their own water bottle and be able to go and get, you know, drinking water from this particular fountain is not connected to the city's sanitation system. And so everything is kind of within its own components kind of just helping to clean the water. And so we also looked at being able to put that in places such as nursing homes because they would not be able to get in line and get in a car and go drive to a church to get pick up water. So that's something that would be almost impossible for some of the individuals who are in nursing facilities. So in a way to kind of bring it directly to them. And so we looked at, you know, how we could expand this into rural communities where, um, you know, Jackson is just kind of its own place. It's like, you know, for us who grew up in rural parts of the, the state is when we say we're going to town, we mean like the larger cities, like we're coming from, you know, our different county roads or down somewhere else, 20, 30 minutes or hours away to go to places like Jackson to shop and eat out and do all those other things sometimes. So having access to water in all these other places outside of the city of Jackson, because if you can, you can imagine that the capital city's infrastructure is crumbling, as Catherine mentioned, is not designed to last forever. What's happening in these other smaller areas where you don't have this type of constant oversight or people actually, you know, coming in to make sure that, you know, things are operating properly. And so I just think about where I grew up is Lambert, Mississippi, and it's in Mississippi Delta. And so we have issues with flooding now that has happened over the past three years that have kind of been a, a big issue because of climate change where we live. And so in the Delta, that's the lowest point 
in the state. And so all the water that comes through the dams that have been created, it's gonna flow into these small cities. And eventually if we ever get into a situation like a once in a lifetime snowstorm or a break in any of these dams, these towns will be wiped out. So all these issues are connected And that's just one of the examples that we've been looking at is using solar power to create water distribution places and having them in central locations where they're accessible for everyone. Thank you, Ashley. Catherine and Ashley, a big component of what we do in our field of health education is focused on the advocacy efforts. And that's one of the eight areas of responsibilities of a health education specialist. Could you speak Both of you speak to what individuals can be doing to be better advocates for your respective communities. What can health educators, um, those in public health, be doing to highlight these issues that are occurring in Jackson and Lowndes County and other places around the country? Well, one of the things that health educators can do, I mean, even with us, I've been like John the Baptist crying in the in the wilderness about the, the wastewater problem for many, many years until I partnered with Dr. Peter Hotez and we did the parasite study when I told him about what I suspected in Lowndes County and the possibility that because of exposure to raw sewage, then people could potentially, you know, have illnesses. And he said, we're going to look for hookworm. And he sent his parasitologist. And the interesting thing is that he was ahead of the curve with that because the PCR technology that they used to do that test to do the study is the same PCR technology now that's used to determine it's the gold standard for COVID. If you want to be tested and find out whether or not you have it, it's the PCR technology. So that's one way in which we were able to align ourselves with people that had the knowledge to be able to prove what we were seeing on the ground. Also, there are different things that are happening right now around environmental justice. For an example, the White House has made environmental justice one of the center points of this program as it relates to bringing equity to communities. And I now serve as the vice chair of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. And we have public meetings. And that's an opportunity from people around the country because the WEJAC consists of members from around the U.S. But it's also an opportunity for people in the community to go to the website, sign up, and be able to give public comments. People are hearing that from all of these federal agencies. They're going back reading these comments. And sometimes people don't, you know, the people in Washington that have the funds that go to the states, those funds sometimes never make it to those communities. But one way to make sure that people know about your issues is to be able to talk about it at events like that. And also, whenever there are town hall meetings in your community where your local representatives from Washington come there, make sure they know what's going on because a lot of them don't. The only time some of them even show up is around election time. But make sure that they know what's going on, document it, write editorials. The people that have been very effective that I've worked with are people with the New Poor People's Campaign. And those are organizations like that run by Reverend William Barber. It's something that people can be engaged in. I, I had the opportunity through the New Poor People's Campaign to go to Flint. And that's how I got a chance to see firsthand the Flint water crisis. When I was there, the National Guard was still distributing water to the citizens of Flint. There were people at Flint that had signs on their homes just saying $5,000 or best offer because they knew that the value of their homes had fallen because of this. So there are numerous ways in which we can be engaged. But the most important way to be engaged is to vote. If we don't vote, 
we're going to continue to have these problems over and over and over again. And we can't get mad and stay at home and don't pay attention. And we need to see what's happening up and down the ballot, not just who that you know that's in your community that's running. We need to know who's on the Public Service Commission because the Public Service Commission determines water policy in a lot of cases, depending on which state you're in. So all of those kinds of things are very important. And I think the more we learn and exercise our right to vote, the closer we're going to get to that kind of equity that we need. I'll just add a little bit to that. And that's one of the things that came out in some of the responses from the participants in our study that talked about organizing within the church. And so um, just to note, Churches don't necessarily have emergency preparedness protocols or plans. So this is kind of a next step for us to look at how we can help those churches formalize these particular plans and create networks. And so when something like this happens, that they'll be ready to respond and, you know, quickly respond. Also wanted to know is that I believe it was the EPA chief actually came to Jackson to talk about some of the issues that they were facing back in November. And ironically, the water quit working at the same time. And so you're just like, well, here, you know, thank you for coming. So we can actually show you what's happening now. The water's not on. And we don't have to tell you about the issues that we're facing because you're seeing firsthand that it's actually happening here. And Catherine talked about voting. And that was one of the big things that came out as we were talking with pastors is that, you know, they're wanting to work with city officials to be formally included in the emergency preparedness protocols. But at the end of the day, the pastors can't turn the water back on. They can't do anything related to making sure the citizens have clean drinking water. They can only be a place where individuals can come together and have those types of town hall meetings or conversations. They can help facilitate that. But civic engagement is important for us to be able to make adequate policy level changes. And so while, you know, inside the church as its own institution, they can create these protocols and plans, but that only goes so far. It can only work within the walls of that particular space, but it does not have a far-reaching effect into the city of Jackson or even broader into the state of Mississippi. And so lastly, there is also issues of lead in the drinking water. And so just wanted to highlight that the city of Jackson is actually going through a lawsuit now in which there has been exposure to lead in the drinking water for children. And so we're kind of seeing the same thing that happened in Flint and probably in other places around the country that just have not gotten the notoriety that you know we have been able to get and the exposure to it by having people talk about it like we're doing today. And also, this is one of the things that I try to include when I'm teaching my undergraduate courses is making sure that they're aware of things that are happening right down the street from us that, you know, and I say right down the street, although Oxford and Jackson are technically not down the street from each other, but we're in the same neighborhood, we're in the same state. And I'd be remiss if I never told them about, you know, things that are happening right in the capital city as they come here to learn from different places around the country. So we always talk about Flint as like a case study that I try to use in class. But now with my understanding and my work with individuals in Jackson, we're bringing that into case studies. So we have we're in a way developing the next group of advocates who are going to continue to carry 
on with this work, even we're hoping that with us doing this work that we'll start to see some changes, but we know that change is incremental and it doesn't happen overnight. And so we're training the next group of public health practitioners to kind of carry on and to carry the torch and to make sure that these issues don't fall by the wayside and that they're continued to become relevant. Thank you, Ashley and Catherine. One last question I think that podcasting or listeners will probably appreciate is you talked about advocacy, you talked about the policy implications, but from our field, one of the first things we do is needs assessment. So that includes a lot of data. And so someone's probably on the podcast listening saying, where's the data? You highlighted what you have, but what is it that you still need data-wise to really be good advocates? What, what other information is needed to make the case for policy change in your local communities? Well, one of the things that we're doing, we're actually engaging in a national program where we are collecting data on on-site systems throughout the U.S. There's no national database. So that's one of the things that we're doing. We're also engaged with people that are data scientists and using satellite technology to map some of this because sometimes people need to see it. They need to see more than just that. I mean, politicians, I think politicians are different and policymakers are different than than maybe the people that are working on the academic side because the academic side is going to look for the data to be able to create, you know, papers and whatever, but to, to create policy, people have to see the direct impact that it's having on the communities that are there. For an example, one of the data sets that we're putting together in Lowndes County, Alabama, for an example, there's sewage lagoons there. We need to paint a picture of where these lagoons are located and who lives around them. It will tell a story that's more vivid than anything that we could probably write and put on paper. And that will also help people to see why these issues are environmental justice issues and who is being impacted by them. So that's the kind of data that's needed. We're also talking to people, for an example, in the colonias. A lot of people don't know that the colonias, which is along the Mexican border, a lot of rural communities as well there, they're having the same problems that they're having in Lowndes County and we're coming together and collaborating. And I think the other way to share the data is to make sure that the people is use the principles of environmental justice and make sure that the people from the community are sitting at the table in the design as well as the implementation. And I've seen that happen in places like in North Carolina, uh, in Eastern Carolina, where they have the hog farms, you know, the universities, they are actually working with people who are doing the work and going out collecting the data and doing the experiments, but they're helping them to interpret this and make sure that it is translated into the policy that's needed to change these issues. So uh, even what you're doing in terms of the study with the churches, the churches, you know, my background before I started doing this, I was a history teacher. So I know that historically, even before slavery ended, it was the churches, even the churches that were on the plantations that were gathering before and burying and marrying people before the end of slavery. And then certainly after slavery, the first schools, especially the HBCUs came out of the churches. So the churches have always been a strong institution in our communities. And I'm happy to know that you all are working with them to find contingency plans for how we can deal with these various problems that we have now and the problems that we're gonna have in the future as well. Absolutely. And I just wanna thank you all so much for your input and your thoughts here and really echo the emphasis not only in quantitative, but also qualitative data. And I love that you mentioned this participation from the community from start to finish, but especially in the interpretation step. I mean, I think that we often think 
community mobilization and community participation as a whole. And I think it ends up being towards the end, but especially in this interpretation and really making sure that these communities are part of the data collection interpretation as well as solutions. So as we've mentioned earlier, that a lot of these solutions aren't built to last. And so really having the community at the table for that is so, so important. Before we wrap up, I just wanna open the floor one last time if you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to add. I have a question for Catherine. Um, so you were featured on 60 Minutes recently. Would you like to share anything that didn't make the final cut for the interview or something that was just, you wish you would have said during the interview that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, I think that they did a great job for 12 Minutes, but a lot of what they did not show and couldn't show were how many families are impacted by not having sanitation systems and, and, and the mental health consequences of that, as well as the public health consequences. A lot of people in the area already are dealing with healthcare disparities. Lowndes County had the, at one point in the state of Alabama had the highest death rate per capita from COVID than anywhere else. And this was just another crisis on top of that. And, and what COVID did was amplify this. And we we're finding that sanitation is also being used in some places, they're testing wastewater to see the infection rate of COVID in communities. So this is very, very vital. We have to deal with these issues around infrastructure and how infrastructure works in 60 minutes. I think they did a great job. I think Bill Whitaker also emphasized the lack of the policy and we can't have people that are insensitive in places that think that it's okay for people to have outhouses. So um, I think that, that, and that, you know, really it was the Rockefeller Foundation. They had the Rockefeller Sanitary Project where they tested for hookworm years ago, back in the early 1900s, which led to the rise of public health in the South. And that was because people did not have ways of dealing with their sanitation, with their waste. And that's why a lot of people were infected, especially in the South with hookworm. So it is, it's, you know, as we come full circle, I think they couldn't talk about the history of all of this, but I think that this is the appropriate place to be having this discussion about how we deal with water and sanitation, because it is why we have uh, public health, because it will determine and how we treat our water and how we treat our waste determines our mortality rate. So we couldn't cover all that in 60 minutes, but we covered a whole lot of that here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Excellent. And thank you all so much for your time and for sharing space today. And I'm sure others who listen will be excited to take a look at the book and see more about the work that you all do. But thank you all so much. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health dash promotion dash practice. Take care and have a great day.